This is an ABC podcast. Jack Ashby is a British zoologist from Cambridge University's Zoological Museum who writes very candidly, if I sound excited about platypuses, it's because I am. Jack Ashby is fascinated by the utterly distinctive creatures that have evolved on our island continent. But nothing delights him as much as platypuses. And it is platypuses, by the way, not platypi, because it's a Greek word and not a Latin one. The British, when they first came to Australia, were confounded by the platypus, a creature that has a body like a mole, a bill like a duck, and feet like an otter, that lays eggs and yet suckles its young, Well, all that just threw out all their systems of animal classification out of whack. And the way they and the rest of the world dealt with their confusion was to all too often disparage Australia's wildlife as weird or even primitive. Australia was seen by them as a place with joke animals and, alarmingly, no pre-existing humans. Well, Jack Ashby doesn't think this is a very grown-up way to look at things. He sees platypuses and echidnas and Tasmanian devils and all our other creatures as noble, beautiful and fascinating. And he wants the world to know all about them. Jack's book is called Platypus Matters, the extraordinary story of Australian mammals. Hi, Jack. Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me today. Your museum in Cambridge, this is Darwin's museum. What kind of stuff have you got in that museum? We've got about 2 million specimens covering the whole of the animal kingdom, the whole of geological time, or biological time, I should say, um, the whole of the world. So, as you say, we've got, we've got a lot of Darwin specimens um, here. He was a student at Cambridge for a few years and ended up leaving his collections to the Cambridge Philosophical Society, which is one of the founding parts of our museum. So, so you got stuff there from the Voyage of the Beagle? Have you got like a turtle or something or a tortoise from the, the Beagle? We have. What Darwin did when he came back from the Beagle is to is to partition off different groups of animals to different experts in those fields. Uh, And we ended up, or Cambridge ended up, with the fishes, which might not be the kind of (laughs) the sexiest part of the beagle collection. So we've got Darwin's fishes um, from the beagle. We've also got the finches that came back from the beagle, which are probably the most famous thing to come off the beagle because Darwin's finches, I'm I'm doing air quotes around Darwin's finches here, are perhaps the best example of how evolution worked in Darwin's eyes. So these are... The Galapagos finches, a finch, it turns out, um, or one species of finch flew from South America to the Galapagos Islands and there evolved into 14 different species with different beaks. So some beaks for uh, big nutcracking beaks for, sm- for smashing seeds, some really fine beaks for pecking flowers. Um, and Darwin used this as an example of, of, of adaptive radiation, of to say this is how it evolved. But the reason I did air quotes is because I'll finches aren't actually collected by Darwin. They were collected by uh, the captain Fitzroy and one of the uh, one of the crew, Fuller, who actually did a far better job than, at Darwin, than Darwin of labelling the specimens and where they came from. So you're surrounded by all these wonderful specimens and yet, and yet, and yet for you, it was the platypus that entirely enchanted you, Jack. Tell me about this platypus. What was the first one you saw and how did you become so enchanted by it? So the first platypus specimen I saw was actually in the museum in which I I now work in Cambridge as an undergraduate many years ago and uh, we our course in zoology was essentially you were given one group of animals per week and we'd have a load of lectures about that that group and then we'd go to the museum for for practical sessions with the specimens and um, so this was the week they wheeled out the monotremes was it? (laughs) Absolutely and yeah my lecturer Adrian Friday who's still around the museum kind of absolutely sparked this 
these are the most amazing animals that have ever evolved. They, they are absolutely astonishing. And then platypuses and echidnas acted as a kind of gateway drug for me into the rest of Australian mammals. Why did you love them so much? They are astonishing. The things they can do are unlike pretty much any other mammal on Earth. And they're kind of an evolutionary biologist's dream because they've got features, you know, evolution works by starting at, a, at its starting point in, in whatever group you're looking at and then kind of adding or subtracting from there. And platypuses have retained some features that um, other mammals haven't retained, like walking with bent elbows and knees and um, laying eggs, obviously. Uh, but on top of that, I've layered these absolutely astonishing adaptations that you don't see elsewhere. Hey, see, when I was talking about this with my producer Nicola earlier on, she and I both distinctly recall in school when we were kids being taught that monotremes were not mammals. Now, we both have memories of this in, in school, and we're going back <clears throat> some decades now, I'm afraid to say, Jack, uh, in, in this case. And so it's interesting to hear you call them mammals. Has there been a shift or something? Well, absolutely. this this was a, a, a major conundrum when platypuses and echidnas were first encountered by Europeans in the 1790s because... So I'm pretty sure you weren't at school in the 1790s, but the, uh, Not quite. the uh, kind of the rules by which naturalists had arranged the world didn't allow for platypuses and echidnas to be considered mammals. But it was really confusing because um, they had fur, which was a defining feature of mammals, remains a defining feature of mammals. They suckle their young. They suckle their young. But with platypuses and echidnas, because they don't have nipples, it took a really long time to prove that indeed they do produce milk. <laughs> Sorry, so, they suckle? They, they suckle without, they, without nipples? That must hurt. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I guess it hurts less because the, <laughs> what they're doing is they're almost sweating their milk out. So really? Have, right. So the reason, the reason it was problematic is that female platypuses only, or like, like anything, I guess, only have large mammary glands whilst they're actually lactating. So people kept catching platypuses that they couldn't find the mammary glands, they couldn't find the nipples, therefore not a mammal. But it turns out that they spread to cover pretty much the whole of their bellies and even up round on their backs. Really? Their milk glands. And then they sweat them out into these little milk patches on, on their undersides and the babies lap them up from there. And actually, if you think about it, platypuses, I guess, are most famous for their bills, right? You can't suckle with a bill, so you can't attach yourself to a nipple with a bill. So we, if, if they did have nipples, they would never have evolved beaks, is my contention, I guess. There. So how do they latch on? <laughs> they, all they're doing is basically kind of sucking it up from wicked fur. Right. So the, the milk goes into the fur and they, they kind of lap it up from there. So this is one of the reasons why they caused such confusion when the Europeans encountered them for the first time. They have fur, like a mammal. They suckle their young, like a mammal, even though they don't have nipples. But they lay eggs. So That's that, the thing, right? That was the biggest controversy, that it took nearly 90, well, it took 90 years to prove that platypuses and echidnas lay eggs. Obviously, the first colonists were asking Indigenous Australians how do they reproduce? And indigenous Australians are saying they lay eggs, and uh, and they go, "Oh, he's pulling my leg." Right. Eggs, they just didn't well, believe it. They just, right. just exactly yeah. they just dismissed the people who have obviously known these species for sixty thousand years or more. And so people were collecting platypuses and trying to. Stop. It was a, one of the biggest controversies of of the nineteenth century, partly because it was so tied up with the idea of do, does evolution happen? You know, so Darwin's theory was published in in eighteen fifty nine. So that ninety year fight for the platypus egg laying is right it's kind of surrounds darwin's publication but i think there were people who just weren't willing to accept that something that looked like a mammal could do something so kind of primitive if you like and reptilian dragging our, our noble class down into the into the mud with 
belly dragging uh, frogs and lizards and things like that, and just in a kind of political social idea. Just, oh, because we're mammals, right? Because we're mammals, uh, right? That, um, and also that just the idea that if you've got a group that shows some kind of reptile-like characteristics and some mammal-like ca- characteristics, so fur and eggs, for example, that would lend weight to the idea that species do change, that it's a kind of intermediate, which is not how we look at platypuses and echidnas now, but it's got features of both groups, which really adds weight to the evolution is true idea. Which... So, so in other words, they were confounding because they text the European mind and all that kind of taxonomy they had. There's the platypus out there and there's the echidna out there that says that well you're going to have to sort of dismantle that and put it back together again exactly they just they broke the rules they broke the rules they're rebels they're evolutionary (laughs) rebels so when was it you first caught sight of a a real life platypus in the wild jack it was on the 23rd of december 2005 (laughs) (laughs) Um, and i was i was uh in tasmania and we'd been if i was there like i don't know if i'm alone in this but I think. I hope a lot of kind of naturalists or, or nature-loving people have these. I will use the word bucket list, but I think that may be dismissive a bit more. But like, there are species you want to see. And platypuses, since that undergraduate class, had been at the top of my list of, I must see the species. And um, as soon as I got a job, that was the target. You know, raise, save enough money to, to fly to Tasmania and see some platypuses. And we'd been there about a week. And we'd been doing the overland track, which is... Um, kind of a six day, five, six day walk across central Tasmania in the middle of summer. And every night we'd go down to the lakes and rivers that we were camping by to look for platypuses. But unfortunately, it was beautiful weather and the overland track is beautiful. So many people were on it and they were all swimming. Um, so we didn't have a chance. But on the very last night, which was Lake St. Clair, uh, which is Australia's deepest lake, we'd come come out of the snow and so it's it's summer in Tasmania I'm sure many people know that it can swing from t-shirt weather to snow and we came out of the snow down um down through the rainforest and it was really it became really heavy rainforest rain we thought no one's going to be swimming tonight so we went down to the lake and we sat there and um my friend Toby Nell and I had, had kind of got this scheme of you'd wait for one someone to see a platypus and then you'd wait for it to dive and then you'd catch the attention of the other person. What, you'd wave frantically? You'd wave frantically, right. you'd shout right. okay. um, because platypuses close their eyes and ears underwater so they can't hear anything but right. they're super sensitive on on the surface so you have to kind of stand dead still and and Toby, I'd realised, had gone way out of earshot from where I was sitting so I get up and I start following his, his footsteps and I can see him on the other side of this marsh and in his face it is obvious to me that he has just seen a platypus and I am terrified because what you know what the worst case scenario is that he sees it and I don't and you that's haven't a, right that's so selfish but that was, so uh he signals that it's safe to come that it's diving and we, and we kind of stand there so this the tried and tested rules of seeing a platypus are like I don't know if you have this game in Australia but you know, grandmother's footsteps or what's the time Mr Wolf monsters in the dark monsters in the dark you know you've got a creep closer to to your target but if they see you move you're out and that's how it goes with the platypus so you you wait for them to dive and you give yourself 30 <laughs> seconds <laughs> exactly right, exactly right. 30 give yourself seconds, 30 seconds right. and you freeze and you wait for right. it to um, come back up again and on that time we'd, we'd seen it it was it was just kind of over overjoyed and we crept closer i think three times of this kind of dive run freeze surface dive run freeze and the third time it dived and I ran and up to, to my closest point and I was, um, I gave myself my 30 seconds and then Platypus 
did not reappear. And maybe two, three minutes later, and they can do amazing things. They can drop their their um, kind of metabolism to like 10 beats per minute their hearts can go to. So they can stay down there for a while. 10 minutes or more. 10 minutes Um, without breathing. Yeah. And eventually when it surfaced, it's like I got got the rules wrong and I just ran. It was like I'd been waiting too long um, and it dived and (laughs) it was gone. (laughs) But you glimpsed it then. We got more than a glimpse. We saw it for, you know, a good three three surfaces. I get a sense of your sense of sacredness. Did you feel like you were kind of a guest in some amazing space like a, a natural cathedral or something like I that. I think I think so. That's I think it's always the case when you're kind of encountering live wild mammals. You know, I work with dead specimens in museums where it's very much on our terms. We can do whatever we like. You know, we can turn them whatever angle. Um, in the wild, you're there on the animals' terms. It's you know, it's, there's nothing you can do to make them stay longer. Or <laughs> yes, you're a grown man playing monsters in the park. <laughs> exactly. With the platypus, it has this famous bill that's often likened to the bill of a duck. Is it like the bill of a duck? It is not. So the species was described by Europeans in Europe. They were sent dried specimens. So once you're sent, it's, it's, they go leathery. In fact, if you look at historic images of platypuses, where the bill joins the face, the bits that's supposed to cover the, the face, so the, the back of the bill folds over their face, is kind of stick up, stuck upright, and it's kind of at right angles to their bill. You see this on, on historic drawings and then taxidermy, from which, which have been copied from historic drawings, but actually it's, it's soft and supple and leathery in life. Oh, it's not like a beak then? No, so it's got two little rods of bone running through it. I think they look like a, an earwig's pincers as a skeleton, but then they're covered with this, this skin and it's soft and, and leathery. Um, but inside is the most astonishing sensory system of any mammal. What so do you mean? Platypuses and echidnas and one species of dolphin are the only mammals that can detect electricity. So their bills have electroreceptors in them. And the reason for that is, as I said, they close their eyes and ears underwater, but they can eat 700 grams a day of, of crayfish and worms. Wow. So it's a lot of worms. So how do they find this food? Um, and the answer is electroreception. So... As, as we're taught in, in biology classes at school, every muscular contraction, including our heartbeats, is controlled by an electrical impulse from our nervous system. And platypuses can sense the world in these electrical impulses. So they're basically hunting their worm and crayfish prey down by feeling their heartbeat. The electrical impulse is given off by their heartbeats. So that's why they rummage around in the gravel of the riverbed with their bills? Yes, exactly. So they, they kind of work like a metal detectorist, sweeping their, their, their bills around. If you watch them, it's, it's very back and forth. They're also very, very sensitive to touch, so they can feel things too. They don't need to use electricity all the time. But. So once they've caught their prey in their bill, how do they actually grind it up so this is a great story i think firstly they have pouches like a hamster so they whilst they're underwater they stuff all their food into their cheeks cheek pouches and then once they they only eat on the surface and as i'm sure anyone who's been to the dentist knows teeth are a really bad idea you know like sure they can grind things up but if they get damaged it's kind of it's game well, over it, yeah. yeah it's it's extremely unpleasant and platypuses eat really hard food so they smash you know, many, many crayfishes a day. But what they've done is they've evolved from animals with teeth, and in fact, platypuses are hatch, grow tiny little teeth, and then reabsorb them. Um, so they definitely evolved from animals with teeth. But what they've done is they're adults, as don't don't have teeth. They've um, evolved these horny ridges. They look like a kind of comb on its side, 
Um, and they're made of horns, they're made of keratin, so the same as our fingernails and our hair. And these are constantly regrowing ridges. So they're really tough. They can grind up crayfish and mollusks and, and whatever else they might eat and just constantly regrow. So it's a fantastic evolutionary adaptation. So what, what, they, that, what they sit in the side of their, their they're, mouths? They're and, where their and, teeth would be. Where their teeth would be. And they're, they're, they're like these regrowing plates then, are they? That, yeah. That, dis- that can crush crayfish. Yeah. Yeah, wow. yeah. And they're really bumpy. Uh, they look, like I said, like a comb. Well, if, these, if, if this is such a good thing, why don't we have these That's things? a great question. You we know, don't know. I, I think it's so weird that so few a conspiracy mammals... Conspiracy of dentists to keep yeah, the whole teeth thing going, perhaps? Only one mammal, as far as we know, has evolved ever replacing teeth, and actually that's a species of wallaby. Um, How versatile are those webbed little hands and feet that they've got? Super versatile. So they, you know, they live in three worlds. They live underground as burrowing mammals, they live on land as, as walking mammals, and they live in the water as swimming mammals. And they do that because of their front feet. And I like to describe them as kind of transformers or Swiss army knives. That they, they pop out these tools or fold them away depending on what they're doing. So in the water, they can fold out this big fan of skin that goes beyond their fingers um, and kind of held by the struts of their fingernails, their claws. And that makes you know, a great paddle, so they're very good swimmers. On land, they fold up this, um, this webbing and walk on their knuckles. They, walk, they kind of bunch up fists and they, and they walk like that. And then when they're digging, they fold out like a garden fork. So they fold back the webbing, but their claws are really long for an animal of their size. And they can, you know, female platypus can, grow, can dig over 10 metres. Um, so they've got, they're also you know, encased in this, this, this beautiful, thick, silky-looking fur... How good is that at keeping water from their skin? It's amazing because if you watch a platypus for any length of time, after a little while, it'll start preening itself. So they'll start grooming and they're super flexible. Their hind feet can kind of reach under their, you know, over their heads. Um, and that's because... What? Really? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're most, some of the most flexible animals I've ever seen. Um, and that's because, you know, all aquatic mammals tend to have really, with fur, should I say semi-aquatic mammals, tend to have really dense underfur because it's, it's strange to think of, but a platypus can spend 20-odd hours underwater without getting wet. So their fur is so dense uh, in a healthy platypus that that underfur will keep them, um, keep them dry. And unfortunately for them, uh, that became a, a major target of the kind of fur industry. They are the, the animals with, uh, you know, in the 19th century at least, um, with the most valuable fur of any Australian mammal. This is an odd question, but do they make any noises? They, they, the young ones have been described as growling in their nests, which I find quite adorable. You've so not heard this yourself? I've not heard this myself, but people who have excavated them get these, have just described like this kind of little puppy-like growl, which is it's quite adorable. You mentioned there that they burrow. How do they make these burrows and, and where do they do that? So again, this, they, they do, I think they burrow better than any other burrowing animal I can think of. If you look, if you ever watch most burrowing animals, animals, what they're doing is kicking out soil behind them. So they, they kind of excavate a bit and they'll push the soil backwards um, and then you'll see these big spoil heaps of soil outside their burrows, which makes, which them, makes them easy to find. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And plus, if you you know watch marmots, which are kind of like the European version of a wombat, and they just just, just seeing sh- showers right. of soil um, flying out the ground behind them. Um, but what platypuses do is they... At least where the soil's uh, soft enough is that they kind of just push the soil into the walls. So they make no spoil heaps, which means they're really hard to find. They're really strong 
Now, if you look at a platypus skeleton, it's covered with these lumps and bumps that attach muscle um, uh, for making really, really big uh, spade-like hands when they're, when they're in that configuration. So and where do they put the spoil, though? Where do they, they put the soil? They just push it into the walls of the, t- of the tunnel. So they, what, they wiggle in? They wiggle in, and they... So the platypus burrow is pretty much the same dimension as a platypus. They all kind of spin around to tamp the soil into the walls. It also means that if you're, if you're a 30, 40-centimetre-long animal that's burrowing for 10 metres, you don't have to move 10 metres of soil, which is really energetically costly, back down the burrow to get it out of the hole. You just push it into the walls. So they're making the walls of their burrows out of what is tightly compressed soil yeah. then. So that makes it structurally stronger really too, strong, I suppose. Yeah. Why is Australia so special to you, aside from the platypus? And how did the wildlife in Australia compare to other continents you visited, Jack? Well, I, I, it's, it's not a very scientific thing to say, but I think that they are the best animals live in, in Australia. I, and, like, I, <laughs> I, I appreciate the fact you're subjective in such matters. I think this is good. Yeah. The, the, I, I guess the scientific reason is that Australia and, and New Guinea are the only place in the world where all three groups of mammals exist. So uh, class is split into three groups. Placental mammals like us, which produce... Um, babies after a long pregnancy that then finish off their infant growth by a short period of suckling milk. And then there are marsupials, which do the opposite. So they have a really short pregnancy and then do most of their infant growth suckling milk, often in a pouch. And then there are platypuses and echidnas, which lay eggs. And New Guinea and Australia are the only place where you can find all three. So it's kind of a a mammal-watching dream here. You nonetheless have seen some pretty extraordinary creatures in other parts of the world. You seem like like a sloth bear is that right or have I got that wrong sorry a bear sloth or a sloth bear, a yeah. sloth bear. Yeah. right um, I have but it's one of the most frustrating encounters I've ever experienced because I all I could see was it the pinpricks of its eyes um we could hear it it um feeding on fruit we hear it snuffling around and in the very very limits of our torch beam we just got this reflection back of eyes and and we uh we were whisked away by our guide why uh, is that because they are probably one of the most dangerous mammals on earth their claws are maybe 10 centimeters long for for smashing into um, anthills and termite mounds and they are very vicious and so when we st- we're walking around at night stumble across a feeding sloth bear just you know take your face off how about seeing snow leopards you've seen snow leopards in the wild which is a incredible privilege snow leopards had been after platypuses and echidnas and wombats had kind of I'd manage to see them and see them regularly. Snow leopards were at the top of the list, but never realistically thought it was possible. But then one day, um, a friend again, Toby Nolan, who he's a, he works as a um, natural history filmmaker, he said, I've got it. I've got the place and I've got the, the hookup where we can go, which is Spitty Valley in, in India. Uh, most people go to Leh in the Dak, and we went a bit further south. And it was, it was fraught with you know the typical adventure of kind of remote parts of the world where we got there and, a, and an avalanche knocked out the road and we were stuck in this tiny village behind the you know the wrong side of the avalanche for the snow leopards for 3 days and eventually someone said okay we're driving to the avalanche someone's driving on the other side climb over the avalanche and we'll swap cars and then we drove back up the mountain and uh, yeah we we saw snow leopards every day uh Every day. Every day for a week or so. It was absolutely stunning. You're like, looking into the eyes of a snow leopard. But they saw you as well. They saw us. We were, I admit we were, admit we were separated by a narrow gorge, um, but there was a, a mother and two cubs, um, just old enough 
they were just about to leave her and there was a male prowling around waiting to, to mate, I think, as soon as the females had, had got rid of the, of the young. And it was abs- it's one of those things you just can't believe that you're there with one of the most hard-to-see animals on earth. They're so beautiful, aren't they? They are so incredibly beautiful. What's it like to watch them move with that authority and confidence? Just, yes, exactly that authority. They, they're slinking. They you know, walk through snow with such ease. Their feet are huge as kind of snowshoes. And then walking, watching them kind of climb among the rocks um, in hunt of ibex um, and blue sheep is just there. No, it kind of makes your hair stand on end. Broadcast. Podcast. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. A large part of your book, Jack, is the strange things that happened when Europeans spotted the platypus for the first time, when they first came to Australia, and how how much chaos and confusion it caused in the scientific world and in the larger world in general, just by the very existence of an animal like the platypus. You've got a picture in your book that that comes from the second governor of New South Wales, John Hunter, it's a picture of a platypus. Tell me the story of how he came to make that drawing and what became of that platypus that he drew in. Yeah, so Hunter was out on the Hawkesbury River um, near Sydney and he was watching a Darug man hunting on the water and he watched him spear this animal, which, which Hunter then went on to describe as an amphibious mammal, amphibious animal of the mole kind, which I love. I love that the earliest Europe, English name for platypuses was duck mole, which I think duck is mole, duck right. mole, which mm-hmm. is kind of perfect. So Hunter is kind of given credit for discovering the platypus and for hunting, for collecting this platypus, but and kind of the ignoring the fact that it was, of course, a Darug man who, who speared it and found yeah, it and, and, it and then, put yeah, it in front of him. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> And so then Hunter ships it off in a barrel to, firstly to Joseph Banks, whose name is written all over the natural history of Australia in the last 250 years, asking him to take it to the, the Royal um, Literary and Philosophical Society in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which is a town in the northeast of England. And in its barrel, so it's in a barrel of spirits, it was a, a wombat that Hunter had also tried to keep alive and it died after six weeks because Hunter failed to work out what it ate, which I find quite surprising because, you know, wombats eat grass and sedges and <laughs> other things like that. But then it, it arrived um, in Newcastle and it was carried to the what, docks. like a pickled wombat and a pickled platypus in the same barrel? In right. the same barrel, right. yeah. Complete except the, for their guts uh, that he'd sent them over. And, um, and he's... <laughs> Unfortunately, the story goes that there's a, a woman whose name has not been recorded carrying the barrel on her head to the society's uh, meeting rooms. And as she entered the building, it smashed and she was drenched in pungent <laughs> spirits. And I mean, and yeah, so and, not, she was and, a, and, one of the first Europeans ever to touch right. a platypus as it whacked her on the head um, on the way down. And, and, you know, and a 30 kilo wombat, which is presumably slightly more dangerous. So this poor woman was suddenly what? Drenched and draped in alcohol and pickled platypus and wombat remains. Exactly, yeah. Mm, that'd be a really stupid way to die, wouldn't it? it Absolutely. It'd be an amusing was, obituary, but yeah. um, but she <laughs> yeah. did survive this. She week. survived. She survived. Yeah, this as far as is recorded. And then she, I, she was unhappy, though. I think we can sort of guess that. So. Right, yeah. Right. But although, well, let's hope amongst that unhappiness was just the joy of oh my goodness, look at this amazing <laughs> animal. Um, but yes, along with along with the 
those specimens Hunter had sent drawings of his duck mole and uh, and of the wombat um, too. So that's kind of how Europe came to know of the species. You've got a story too that sort of continues this story of Europe's strange relationship with the platypus. Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill wanted to get hold of some platypuses during World War Two. What's the story behind that? <laughs> it's it is bizarre to think that. Whilst running the, kind of the, the Western sphere of, of, of World War II, it's like, oh, do you know what would really help me right now? It's six live platypuses. <laughs> yeah, so it, it was decided that, yes, it, it would probably be political sen- politically sensible for Australia to go against its, its legislation against exporting platypuses and send Winston Churchill one platypus. What? So why did he want a platypus? Though? It's unclear. He just really, it was just really liked the idea of having platypus. Platypuses are ridiculously hard to keep in captivity. Um, but the one man who had successfully reared them, uh, bred them in captivity, uh, was David Flay, and so he was ch- put in charge of preparing this platypus, who was also to be called Winston, um, for his voyage to the UK. What became of the poor thing? Well, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, just four days out of Liverpool docks, the ship was was torpedoed by German U-boats. And although the ship didn't sink, the the kind of shockwaves, I guess, to such a sensitive animal, especially after a long voyage where its worm rations had been reduced, um, it died. Uh, So I think it's kind of extraordinary that a platypus was a victim of World War Two bombing. Uh, World War II, <laughs> yes, a World War Two attack. That's, do we know where this platypus is now? We don't. It's, it, we know that it, the story of of the import and export of the platypus was kept from the British public because the failure isn't good propaganda. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, he then kept well, Churchill then kept the taxidermied animal on his desk, but its whereabouts are currently unknown. Uh, tell me about the whole process of platypus courtship, if you can. How does the course of platypus love run between <laughs> a lady and a man, platypus who are loving each other very much? Um, it's it's hard to observe this in the wild because they are tricky species to, to study. But um, what's been seen in captivity is it's very much up to the, the female platypus that whenever you know the male comes comes knocking, if she's not keen, she'll just swim off to another uh, area, but when when she is ready, they engage in this this beautiful aquatic dance where they follow each other around and they they bite on like he'll bite onto her tail and vice versa, and they'll swim round in these platypus love circles uh, and kind of go upside down and and tumble through the water, um, and then when when the moment comes, he'll bite onto her neck or onto her back and pop his penis out of his cloaca, which is they, 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 Out of his cloaca? Yep, so monotremes have cloacas, which is a kind of one-stop shop for all of their reproduction and waste disposal needs. It's all um, the one thing, is it? Yep, wow. absolutely. Um, so they don't have separate holes. They mm-hmm. just have the one hole. And But the, the penis is only pops out when, when it's needed. Uh, they don't even... Um, they, don't, they don't pee through their penises, which is unusual. Wow, uh, um, right. He'll kind of fold his, his back end of his body under hers and... Um, yeah, they'll they'll mate, and then he'll he'll swim off into the sunset, never to be seen again. Really, and, he's a deadbeat. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly, deadbeat dad. Uh, and, and so once she's she's once she's impregnated, then she she digs a burrow. Then does dug, she digs a, a burrow? Um, digs a nesting burrow, which is long, maybe ten meters long, uh, with a with a chamber at the end, and that she'll keep that moist with some vegetation, lay her eggs. And these eggs are they like like I don't know, 
chicken eggs or ostrich eggs? They're most like uh, snake and crocodile eggs. So they're a bit flexible, turtle eggs. So they're kind of marble. They're, they're a bit like an elongated marble. They're just you know one and a half centimetres or so long and a little bit less fat than that. Um, and they're sure they two or three of them, mostly two. Um, and they stick together, which is quite unusual. So they've, they're covered in some kind of in some kind of secretion that means that they stick together. And I think perhaps that makes them easier to keep hold of. And she'll keep them clamped in her fold up, like against her belly in a, by folding her tail up over them, which is kind of sweet. And then I'm going to ask you a very unscientific question here, but you are prepared to sort of be a bit <laughs> subjective about things. Are their babies adorable? They are so adorable. Um, there isn't really a word for them. Um, so I've, I've proposed platypups. So I'd like oh. I'd like people to go out in the world and 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 you know call baby platypuses platypups, but they they're born so they hatch with a kind of like comedy human nose, and that's because they've got this little lump called a caruncle, which um, they use firstly to break out of the shell. They also have an egg tooth, um, and then the caruncle is also used for you know, kneading the mother's mammary glands to rethink to um, promote. Uh, milk production, um, and then the bills kind of grow into a more platypus shape over over months. But they are they are very sweet. Something else I didn't know until I read your book is that the male platypus has venom. A, a, a mammal with venom? That's is that as unusual as I think it is, Jack? Well, the yeah, the list of mam, of venomous mammals is extremely short. So there's platypuses. There's um, shrews, there's slow lorises, and there's selenodons, which are related to shrews. Where does the male uh, platypus keep this venom? In its mouth or teeth? Oh, no, no, no. It no doesn't teeth. have teeth, of course, yeah. right. So, so where have, does it keep it? They have long spurs, about two centimetres long, on the inside of their ankles. Um, and in fact, they're the only known seasonally venomous animal across the animal kingdom. So the only mammal, the only animal that is only venomous some of the time. Well, what does that tell you, that it's seasonally so, venomous? That they use their venom for competition in mating. So it's male-on-male competition, so they're fighting each other and and uh, envenomating each other because if it were used for defence, we'd expect the females to be venomous too, but they are not. Um, is there research being done with this venom, a medical research being done with yeah. <laughs> platypus venom? That's such it's an odd thing to say. extraordinary. The venom yeah. is, is, I was about to say, the venom is unlike any other venom on earth, but that's the opposite is true. Um, that they, the, the cocktail is unlike anything else on earth, but actually they've evolved venom that is almost, so they've got maybe 20 or so different venom compounds, um, and but each of those compounds have evolved convergently with the venom that's seen in centipedes, frogs, fishes, snakes, spiders, jellyfish. So they, they've kind of got the best bits of venom from the animal kingdom and of course this isn't how evolution works they've taken them together and made <laughs> a super cocktail and it's and people not many people have been have recorded being stung by a platypus but those that have done yeah. have described an excruciating pain that can last for months literally months and then um muscle wastage that that goes on for decades so people have been able un, have unable to regain movement for you know I think I think one report I can think of that I can specific, specify a natural number was fifteen years. Um, still wouldn't couldn't move their hands properly, um, and that is because one of these compounds is 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 extraordinarily stable. So it's it just doesn't break down, and that that may be why um, platypus venom lasts so long. So yes, in answer to your question, they, that uh, that those those compounds could be potentially very useful for you know, pain reduction and just how do pain receptors work in humans. The other great monotreme in Australia is the echidna. It's a, it's a very different looking beast 
to the platypus, is it? I mean, yeah, it also, you know, lays eggs and suckles its young. Like I said, they seem to be really different creatures, the spiny anteater and the platypus. Are they more closely related than they appear to be, Jack? Yeah, so they, it, it happened a while ago. It probably happened about 50 million years ago, but echidnas um, evolved from a platypus ancestor. Um, the, the oldest fossil we have, I think, is only 15 million years, but genetics suggests 50 million. Um, so they, and once you, you know, once you take their clothes off, their skeletons are quite similar. Um, but yeah, they're, Echidnas are brilliant animals too. These spines, they are such a good defensive system. If um, they can move them individually, they can lock them into um, kind of roots and, and soil and pebbles, so they become immovable. But my favourite thing about echidnas is what they do with their hands. Um, and if you've ever if you've ever encountered an echidna, you walk up to it and it very quickly rolls up into a ball and tucks its head and its legs. Uh, the most vulnerable parts, tucks its legs and its head under the spine. I call that DEFCON too. But if they're really scared, um, what they do is use all four hands and they do jazz hands with, with all four feet, as I say, and it drills like kind of like a handheld blender. It drills <laughs> vertically into the soil. And they, you just watch them with a, nothing more than a shimmy. They just disappear downwards into the soil. And those feet then lock into roots and, and pebbles too. And they become completely immovable. You cannot pick up a platypus that's gone to DEFCON 1. I ain't a kidna. You went out to Bruny Island, Tassie, with a friend of yours to go looking for echidnas. Tell me about that experience for you, <laughs> the adventure you had at Adventure Bay. Echidnas were actually first encountered by Europeans in Adventure Bay in 1792, which is a, a nice uh, circle <laughs> to that story. <laughs> but yes, I think the, the story you're talking about is we've been in there, we've been looking at echidnas and quolls and the other wonders of Bruny Island. Uh, and we'd been staying in our car in um, in the car park. We'd been sleeping in the car in the beach car park in, in Adventure Bay, as, as, you know, poor young people do, <laughs> rather than pay to go in the campground. And every day we'd wake up with a flat battery. Uh, and I won't go into what was happening there, but every day we'd go into the Adventure Bay General Store and they would lend us, they would refuse to sell them to us, but they'd lend us jump leads and we'd have to jump start the car. Um, so we became very well known to the general store and they, they convinced us to go to the Adventure Bay New Year's Eve party. You know, so they said, oh, you know, bring your own food, bring your own music, bring your own grog. And we, we expected that everyone in, 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 that, in South Bruni, or at least 150 people or so in reach of the village, would be there. But we, we opened the door. It was a stormy night. Um, it felt like I don't know, if you, American Werewolf in London. And you go, they, these, you know, the tourists open the door to the pub and uh, everyone well, just stops, silent. And stops right. immediately and stares at them. Um, and there were 12 people in this, in this party. They were extraordinarily welcoming, but they were all waltzing. So they'd, they'd been um, learning a waltz for the New Year's Eve party oh, since lovely. February. But one of the guests, there's 12 people, and there was a wallaby, uh, which was an extraordinary <laughs> experience that someone had, had rescued um, a you know, pouch young of a roadkill, Bennett's wallaby. So I spent much of the evening with this this, this baby <laughs> wallaby that couldn't leave the warmth of a warm body. Um, so it was definitely the best New Year's Eve I've ever had. <laughs> Large part of your book is about this odd disdain there is for Australia's wildlife. It's historic, really. You hear it from Americans, you hear it from the British, you hear it from Europeans as well, where Australia's wildlife is seen as kind of primitive. It's a really odd thing. It's a really kind of an odd, irritating thing I find um, 
every time I've gone to America, Americans will say, oh, I can't possibly go to Australia. I'll get killed in five seconds. Everything in Australia is trying to kill you. What do you make of all that, this culture of, of Australia is like the junkyard of God's mistakes, you know? <laughs> so I think absolutely. I think those two things you just described, the kind of everything is trying to kill you and the primitive idea are both very much intertwined so that these are both ways of kind of writing off Australian mammals in a... And I'm sure entirely subconscious, but it's, it's, a, it's a hangover from a colonial mindset. If you read any 19th century description or 18th century description of Australian mammals, they are all, without exception, describing them as, as lesser mammals, of lower, inferior, primitive indeed, that they are, they are not meeting this. So in, in being seen as being different to the kind of zoological standard of the animals they were familiar with in Europe um, and the Americas, and I think it very much was tied into the kind of colonial project of, of kind of putting down everything in Australia, the people, the landscape and habitats and, and climate and the wildlife. And by tying the wildlife into this kind of terra nullius argument that there is nothing there of, of value, um, it helped justify the invasion. And um, as I say, every single scientific description is, is, is saying these are strange, weird, primitive, inferior animals. And where that, the kind of everything is trying to kill you comes in, I think it's, it's absolutely bonkers, you know. Like, yeah, America, like <laughs> I, I always say to Americans, you've got bears in your country, man. They're like sharks that can walk on land. Exactly that. And they come exactly into your backyard that. and eat your trash. I mean, none of those sharks. What you, it's like, are you crazy? It's like, it's really weird. Yeah, other than Europe, um, or at least parts of Europe, that Australia is the only continent that doesn't have any large land predators. Um, so it's it is the safest place. I've spent you know I've spent the last couple of weeks in Tasmania on fieldwork, and I'd be out every night on my own in the forest, spotlighting for animals with absolutely no fear that I'm going to get eaten by a tiger or a bear or a wolf at any point. Your toe won't get nibbled off by a Tasmanian devil. <laughs> well, it's pretty unlikely, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but it does seem, it's interesting when you look back at the first responses the British had when they came to Australia to the natural world of, of Australia. They, whether they were often arriving in places as beautiful as Sydney Harbour, the Derwent River, the Swan River. And you can see in some of the records, sometimes they went, oh, this is an incredibly beautiful place. This is stunning. But then there are others like Baron Field who wrote this poem called Kangaroo. I'm just going to quote the first stanza of it for you. He wrote, Kangaroo, kangaroo, thou spirit of Australia that redeems from utter failure, from perfect desolation and warrants the creation of this fifth part of the earth, which would seem an afterbirth, not conceived in the beginning, for God blessed his work at first, and saw that it was good, but emerged at the first sinning, when the ground was therefore cursed, and hence this barren wood. I, I, to be blunt with you, Jack, when I read that, I think, what a dickhead. I really do. <laughs> I mean, imagine, imagine coming arriving in Australia and just going, well, this is God's junkyard like this. It's an extraordinary thing. This is really a widespread phenomenon, you found. It is, absolutely, throughout the 19th century and 20th century. But actually, I think it, it harks on today in that if you go to any museum, uh, hopefully outside of Australia, you go to any museum or any read any newspaper article about Australian mammals, particularly platypuses, or go to, uh, you know, watch a TV documentary. The trope is, these are strange animals. They are weird, weird and wonderful, but nonetheless weird. And no other continent, another large part of the world, get, has its wildlife treated in this way. And every animal is weird. Like deer, how strange is it that an animal grows 30 kilos of bone every year and then just drops Out of it, its head. Out of its head. And just, but like, no one thinks, oh, the deers are weird. You know, if you go to... 
in a way, you know, India or, or Africa are places with a massive hunting and uh, hunting as well, but safari industries. Those animals are considered kind of noble and majestic. Okay? Tigers and, and lions, like majestic and, and awesome is the words you get for those. You don't, no one describes, except, you know, bands like like ourselves, I hope, uh, wombats as, as kind of majestic. And I, and I think this is all tied into the way we've been socially conditioned by these years of kind of colonial denigration of saying that they are kind of inferior, strange beasts. Yes, Australia, oh, very nice. But it's not Kew Gardens, is it? That, <laughs> that, that, that attitude as well. The word primitive is interesting. What, does that mean anything to you as a naturalist, as a, as a zoologist? What well, does primitive mean? It is so, con- so regularly used that, you know, people would say platypuses and echidnas are, are the world's most primitive mammals. But that makes absolutely no scientific sense. Um, let us let aside the kind of unscientific fact that I think they are the best animals. No two, you know, every animal on earth is equally evolved, living animal, every animal is li- equally evolved. What it comes from is that, as I said earlier, they've, they've retained certain features that we might consider primitive. So in the evolutionary biology, we might call a, a feature primitive. So egg laying is a primitive feature because it's inherited from uh, monotremes, uh, reptile-like ancestors. But that doesn't make the whole species primitive. We all have primitive features. Legs, human legs are primitive features because we've evolved them from the first fishes to walk on land. But that doesn't make us primitive. It's entirely subjective what we choose to say, this what set you apart. You know, and, and interestingly, with, you know, with eggs in, in, in platypuses, that's considered primitive. But if you look at eggs in birds, birds also evolved, you know, retained eggs from their reptile-like ancestors, the dinosaurs. Yeah, and you could turn it around, like you say, and say that the platypus has these advanced grinding mechanisms and exactly. to, to grind down their food. They have these advanced forms of very stable compounds in their venom. What about intelligence? Sometimes they're regarded as Australian animals are often dismissed as unintelligent. Is yeah. that weird too? It's also strange. And that, that goes back to, again, 19th century descriptions who, who just write them off as, as animals with small brains and low intelligence. And, and the small-brained idea, particularly for marsupials, was was considered so was so pervasive that no one bothered to check until it was 2010. My colleagues Anjali Goswami and um, Vera Weisbecker thought, "Hang on, let's actually see how big Australian mammals' brains are." And they measured the brain capacities of a load of different mammals from across the world. And they found that if you took out one group of animals which have freakishly large brains, which are the primates, if you take primates out of the equation, marsupials and placental mammals have the same size brains compared to their body mass. Um, and in fact, at small body sizes, marsupials have bigger brains. So it's, it's a complete nonsense to suggest that they're unintelligent. But again, you watch TV shows and you watch a wombat on a TV show, on a documentary, you can guarantee that they'll have some kind of bumbling background music that kind of just suggests that they're a bit stupid. When oh, that. yeah, and koalas are dopey too. Yeah. That's the other thing as well. So this is all part of a, a colonial mindset to your mind. You I think, think so. It's a, hang, it's a subconscious hangover from the way we've been conditioned by two centuries or more of of Australian zoology. And is the platypus suffering from this, do you think? Well, unfortunately, it's not just the platypus, but Australia has the worst mammal extinction rate of anywhere in the world, of of every, from across the world, of all extinctions that have happened since 1788, more than a third have happened in Australia. And, And I think it just can't help if we write these animals off as inferior. It doesn't help, you know, argue against, you know, other demands on Australian resources if you're going up against, you know, mining or land clearing uh, or, or urbanisation to think, oh, these these little animals, they're cute, but ultimately they're, you know, evolutionary destined to go extinct. It's, that's not how evolution works, and I don't think it helps their case. I think we should 
We should embrace the wonderful and get rid of the weird and wonderful. Embrace the platypus. That's the message here today. <laughs> well, but not literally because they have venomous spurs. Uh, Jack, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. and Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Jack Ashby is a naturalist, assistant director at the Museum of Zoology at the University of Cambridge, and his book is called Platypus Matters, The Extraordinary Story of Australian Mammals. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website, abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.